We're beginning a study through the book of Acts tonight. We're going to take our time. We're going to take as much time as it needs. I'm just looking here, yeah. It's going to take us at least 28 weeks. I mean, there's 28 chapters. We're not going to do more than a chapter a week, I'm sure. So it's a big series. What we want to do is go verse by verse, precept upon precept. The Bible interprets itself. And one of the best ways to understand what the Bible says anywhere within it is to read before it and read after it. And so what we'll be doing is reading through the book of Acts, making some comments along the way, and we'll also be doing some cross-referencing. So we'll look elsewhere in the book or elsewhere in the Bible to help us understand what we're reading. So let's dive right in. Turn to the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. And it's really where the New Testament begins. Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. Everything Jesus said and did before his death, he did under the law, under the old covenant. And so it was only after his death and resurrection that the new covenant age um, began its, or that the, the, the transition between the covenants began, and then it was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. Just in case you didn't know that, it's good to know. This is where the church begins and where the new covenant really begins. So let's go to chapter 1. We'll start at verse 1, and then, or go to chapter 1, we'll pray, and then we'll start at verse 1. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have tonight to gather around the open pages of your written word. May it come alive to us. It is a living book because it is the testimony of the living word who is Jesus, who is a person who is alive, and he's alive in us. And so I pray that the words of these pages would come alive to us. And it is our desire, Lord, that we would relive the words that we read tonight. And so we pray that by your Spirit, who is present with us, that you would teach us. We ask it in your wonderful name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Theophilus, the one who is addressed is one of the unknown disciples of the early church. His name literally means lover of God or loved by God. Luke's primary objective here in this book is to show that Jesus continued his work and ministry after his resurrection, but from a different position from the right hand of God the Father. 
Skip ahead to chapter 2 and verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So this is Peter's first sermon. He's preaching to those people who heard the tongues and thought that they were drunk in the upper room. And Peter said, we are not drunk as you suppose. It's early in the day. This is what the prophet Joel prophesied. And so he says to them near the end of his sermon that Jesus who was raised up sent the Spirit. Uh, Jesus is raised up at the right hand of God and he sent the Spirit from the right hand as he promised. So Jesus is continuing his work in ministry, but from a different position. And he's, or his work in ministry still continues to this very day. We are participators with him in his work and ministry. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have been empowered to do the same and greater works. We're actually able to preach the gospel. Jesus wasn't able to preach the gospel. Born of a woman, born under the law. He came to bring the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. He just wasn't able to preach it the way we can. And so that's the greater works that we're able to do. We're actually able to preach the gospel and see souls saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so his work continues. Let's read verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles and he gave them many proofs that it was him. I'm thinking of one in particular when Thomas said, show me the wounds. And so Jesus held out his hand and Thomas put his finger in the wound. Many proofs that it was actually Jesus. Jesus actually rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, we would not be saved. We would be forgiven, but we would not be saved. Paul said in Romans that we are forgiven by his blood and we are saved by his life, by his resurrection. And so Jesus, for 40 days, offers his apostles and his disciples many proofs that he actually got up out of that grave. We were talking this morning at breakfast about... Um, the Catholic Church, and how they still have Jesus on the cross. We don't have him on the cross. We don't even have him in a tomb. We have him where the Bible puts him, at the right hand of God the Father. And from there, he sent his spirit to us. And so we're continuing to do the work that he's doing. And his spirit is that which proves that he is alive. We weren't there with Thomas to put our finger in the nail Prince. We weren't there with Mary, with the Marys to see the empty tomb. But the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit. Deep calls unto deep that Jesus is alive. Um, 
There are 10 recorded appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. This ministry has a more important bearing on the lives of Christians today than the three-year ministry recorded in the four Gospels. The kingdom of God includes not only his purposes in the church, but reaches beyond to the reestablishment of the house of David. Go to Acts chapter 15, verse 14 to 17. Acts 15, 14 to 17. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So Jesus had a three-year ministry on earth. His ministry continues during the church age and his ministry will conclude at the end of the millennial kingdom when we enter into the eternal state. Uh, his ministry will conclude after he reestablishes the tent of David or the dwelling place of God with man. And we read that, of course, in Revelation chapter 19 or 20. I'm just going by memory here, uh, where it says the new Jerusalem descends from the new heaven and hovers over the new earth, prepared as a bride, adorned for the bridegroom. And uh, there the dwelling place of God is with man. So God's still at work. He's still working. Jesus is working. And what we see in the book of Acts has far greater consequence because it's longer lasting uh, than even the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, of course, nothing that happens in the book of Acts is possible without that earthly work and that finished work. Um, and so that's the part of Christ's work that is finished, the redeeming work, the saving work. But it's ongoing in us by his spirit so that all who would come to him would be saved. That's why we just read in Acts 15 that God has not just taken the people for himself out of the Jews, but out of the Gentiles as well, all people. All right, verse 4. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy, or sorry, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days from now. So, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Uh, we've read already that Jesus, after his ascension, which happened at the end of Passover, Jesus presented himself for 40 days to his apostles and many others. Somewhere else in the Gospels, I think at the end of one of the Gospels, and if you know it, 
you can say the reference. But at the end of the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus presented himself to around 500 people. Uh, so that's, that's pretty good. If there were 500 eyewitnesses to something, you could pretty much guarantee that it happened. We're going to read in a few moments that out of those 500 people, 120 stayed in Jerusalem and waited long enough to receive the Holy Spirit. And that's true today, isn't it? A lot of people hear the gospel. A lot of people want to be used by God. They just don't want to wait to get the power. They don't want to wait. They don't want to tarry. But we'll get there. Um, So Jesus says that they were not to depart from Jerusalem, but they were to wait for the promise of the Father. They were to wait. And then he refers back to something that Jesus said. Luke does. That's what, I, that's what I meant to say early on. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. It's addressed to his friend Theophilus, but Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is also the writer of the book of Acts. And so Luke is referring to something that Jesus said, that John baptized with water, but I will baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's why we say of Jesus that he is our Savior, our healer, our baptizer, and our soon-coming king. Uh, he baptizes us with the power of the Holy Spirit, which can also be called the fire of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see in the next chapter. Actually, let's read that. Go back to John 6. John 16, sorry. John 16, 7 to 15. The 500. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so it wasn't one of the Gospels. It was 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that Jesus revealed himself to over 500 people or 500 people after his resurrection. Thank you for that. Let's go back to John 16, though, and talk for a moment about the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem. I'm going to send what I promised you. Okay? I'm going to baptize you with fire. So this is what Jesus said while he was on earth, while he was ministering. This is what he said the Holy Spirit would do. Acts, or sorry, John 16, 7 to 15. The heading in my Bible says, The Work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaking, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus just gets done saying that he's leaving. And sorrow filled the heart of his apostles, his disciples. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go I will send him to you. And when he comes, this is what he's going to do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, 
because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, I still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, look at this, he will guide you into all truth. I love this. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and we know that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his disciples write the New Testament. They write the testimony of Jesus. They teach Jesus to us so that those who come after them can know Jesus so that they can be convicted of um, sin and righteousness and judgment. We wouldn't know about those things if we didn't have the Word of God inspired by the Spirit. And so that's what the Spirit comes to do. And He doesn't come with His own message. Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will speak to you what He hears. From who? From Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father. Look at this, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Two more verses. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us a little while and you'll see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, what does this mean a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And then verse 19, Jesus said to, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant when I said a little while and you will see me in a little while? Again, and you will see me. Oh, actually, I read more than I needed to. I kept going. I love the word. I never want to stop. But we need to be true to our study in the book of Acts. So we see here that uh, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would do some very specific things. One of the main things that the Holy Spirit does is glorify Jesus. That's why at the beginning of our Bible studies, I pray things like, Spirit, lead and guide us into all truth. Make Jesus big. Help us see him more clearly. That is what the Holy Spirit does, among other things. But that is what he does, and that's what we want him to do in us and in our meetings. All right, verse 5. John baptized with water. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is a ritual baptism. It signifies something. But spirit baptism is a real baptism. It really happens. You are really immersed in and covered with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism symbolizes your sharing in the death and resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a symbol. It's a ritual. It's good. Jesus commanded his disciples to do it. But the spirit baptism is real. And I love that word, real. It's real. And I want more people to know just how real it really is. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? 
Now, this is not a foolish question. The kingdom will be restored to Israel, and we read that in Acts 15. Simeon, the, the same Simeon that blessed Jesus when Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple on the eighth day and said, now I can die in peace for I've seen the consolation of Israel. And he said and pronounced over Jesus that he would be a light to the Gentiles. And Simeon was one of the first to say that Jesus' work in ministry is not just for us Jews. It's for us first because we were waiting for it, but it's for all people. And so they had this understanding that Jesus was going to restore his kingdom. So it's not a foolish question. A lot of times we, we, um, we look down on the disciples for asking this question as if they don't really get it, but I think they get it. They're not really looking for a political restoration here anymore. I think they're actually looking for the restoration of all things. But Jesus says to them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times and the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So God exists outside of time and space. He's not confined by time and space like we are. And yet there are things that he has fixed within history. But they don't happen on our timeline they don't happen usually when we want them to. They always happen when God wants them to. And we often say this, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Jesus said, in a little while you'll not see me and again in a little while you'll see me. The first little while was 10 days or 40 days. The second little while has been over around 2,000 years. Okay? So, God has fixed the time. Now, this is not what this passage means, but just skip ahead to the book of Revelation. The souls that are under the altar, what do they say? When will you avenge us? And, and Jesus replies, when the number of you is complete. So there's a, there's a demarcation. There's a point when it's complete. Uh, Galatians 4.4 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. At the right moment in history, Jesus comes. Not before, not after. At the exact right time. And so, the disciples say, You're going to restore it now? And Jesus says, Not for you to know the times that God has fixed. And I think we're supposed to live with this idea that it could happen at any moment that the Lord would rapture his church at any moment and set in place or set in motion the events that would bring us to his second coming, whereas we'll read in a moment, he comes back the way he left. But for now, we wait for our blessed hope. Uh, verse, yeah, verse eight. So I love this word, but. I, I told you I'm memorizing about 100 verses of scripture this year. And this is one of them. And what I've noticed is one of the hardest words to memorize in a, in a text is the first word. Because a lot of times they're but, for, therefore, you know, things of that nature. And every time you see a word like that, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? Why does this verse start with but? Well, 
the previous verse tells us. They wanted to know something. They wanted to know when Jesus was going to restore the kingdom. And he said, it's not for you to know, but you can know this. This is what I can tell you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their question in the previous verse. He just tells them that the times and seasons are established. Instead, he gives them a corporate commission. He says, I know this is what you want. I know you want the kingdom to be restored. And, of course, the Father wants it too. He has been orchestrating that. But in the meantime, let me give you a commission. Let me give you something to do. And this is a great commission, but it is not for the church collective, but it is for each individual of the church. That it's not just for Liberty Church to preach the gospel, but it's for each and every one of us to preach the gospel. Now, of course, when we gather, that's what we're going to do. But when you go out from here, when you are given opportunity to do so, do it because you have power and authority to do it by the Spirit who lives in you. So this Great Commission is not just a collective commission that we all fulfill together, but it is one that we each fulfill individually. And because we're each fulfilling it individually, it becomes our collective identity. This is one of Christ's visions for his church that we fulfill this great commission. Look at verse 9. Where are we here? Oh, yeah. I, have the, I got this new Bible a few months ago, and I'm used to a, a Bible that's laid out in columns. But this one is like paragraph form, and it's much harder to find the individual verses. So that's why it takes me a minute sometimes. I'm not hard of seeing yet. Verse 9. And when he said these things, when he gave this commission to go into all the world with the power of the Holy Spirit, when he said these things, as they were looking at him, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. This is known as the ascension of Jesus. His going up. His being raised to the right hand. The ascension is an important and significant miracle in the ministry of Jesus. We can't overlook that. This is a miracle. Like Enoch and Elijah before him. He was taken up. It's miraculous. It's significant. This is especially true in um, the age in which we live, where people can ascend into the heavens. We can fly above the clouds in an airplane or even into the firmament on a spaceship. The cloud here doesn't mean 
rain clouds. It means the Shekinah glory, the same kind of cloud that filled the tabernacle back in Exodus 40, verse 38. The Shekinah glory means the indwelling glory. And of course, we have the Shekinah glory now, not in a room in a building like they did in the Old Testament in the, in the Holy of Holies of the temple. We have the Shekinah glory in us, the Holy Spirit. And it's that same Spirit then that raised Christ up, that caused his ascension. He was surrounded with glory as he had been before in Bethlehem. Go back to John 17. John 17 and verse 5. This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples, this whole chapter. And by extension, it's his prayer for us. Do you know that Jesus is praying for you? And if you're curious about what he's praying, read John 17. You know, you've heard that phrase or you've read that verse that Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand. Well, I believe he's praying these very things. So John, uh, where are we here? John 17, verse 5, in that prayer, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was always surrounded with glory. He was surrounded by glory with the Father in heaven before the world existed. He was one of the us included, or he was included in the us of Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let us make man in our image. He was surrounded by glory then. When he was born, the angels said glory in the highest heavens. And... Um, he was surrounded with glory at his ascension and every time in between. And so it's this glory that took Jesus up into heaven. Uh, verse 10 and 11, let's read those together. And while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. In the New Testament, people dressed in white or radiant clothing are commonly supernatural or glorified beings. And we know that Jesus at this point, and even now, is a glorified being. So Jesus was surrounded with glory, but when he rose from the tomb, he was glorified. He was fully human and is fully human, but he's also a spirit being as well. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He is now what we will be when we are raised. And so Jesus goes up into heaven 
as a glorified being, and he's surrounded by glorified beings. We don't know exactly who these men are, but we know that they are supernatural messengers sent from God's heavenly court. They could be the same two that were there at at, um, Christ's transfiguration with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. They could be the two I mentioned earlier, Enoch and Elijah, who didn't die but were taken up. They could just be angels. I don't want to say just angels. They could be angels. We don't know. It really doesn't matter. What they say matters. These glorified beings are messengers sent from God's court. Whoever it was, doesn't matter. What they say matters. And what did they say? You will see him come the same way you saw him go. We were talking about this at breakfast this morning. Christ's glorious appearing at rapture and his second coming are two different things that happened seven years apart. Christ's glorious appearing that Titus refers to in Titus 2.13 when he says, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That glorious appearing is at rapture when Jesus comes on clouds of glory with the shout of the angel and the trumpet of God and we meet him in the air. But his second coming, his return to the earth, his second advent, his second arrival happens when he touches down on the Mount of Olives. The same mountain he went up from is the same one he's coming down to. And at that time, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we'll be with him. We'll be with him that time. Yeah, I'm kind of overwhelmed here. Just give me a moment. Mm. Let's go back to one of the last books of the Bible, Zechariah 14.4. Not one of the last books of the Bible. Last books of the Old Testament. So just go back to... Yeah. No, sorry. We're not Zephaniah. We're Zechariah. Okay, now we're just going to have to find the, find the minor prophets and just start skimming. I'm going to make one more excuse about this new Bible. Not all the pages have been turned. Some of them stick together. See? There we go. This is good. There we are, Zechariah. Zechariah 14 and 4. Actually, let's go from verse 1. 
Here, Zechariah is prophesying about the second coming of the Lord. Not the rapture, the second coming. Zechariah 14, starting at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, and the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives, and sorry, the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, and a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall face northward and the other southward. So this is the coming of the day of the Lord. He's coming into chaos and turmoil and total evil. By the end of the Great Tribulation, this we think the world's in a mess now. Oh my goodness. It will be deplorable. And Zechariah just gives a little glimpse. The city taken, houses plundered, women raped. It'll be worse than that. But that's what Jesus comes into. And he comes with an army, you and I, and we are going to put down, defeat, and destroy the works of the devil. We want that right now. That day is coming. We will be involved in it. Right now, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. That day, we will be. And we will have victory because Jesus, our general, will be riding ahead of us. Let's take a few moments to talk about the replacement of Judas. I think this is a really interesting um, I think this is really interesting, and it shows how we as humans have a tendency to jump ahead of the Holy Spirit. I mean, even Christ's apostles did it. So if they can be guilty of it, we can be guilty of it too. And we'll see how God, still by his divine providence, accomplishes his purpose, even when we jump ahead, even when we get in the way. Verse 12, 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, this is the 10-day interval between his ascension and Pentecost. We already alluded to that earlier. The attitude of the apostles and believers is that of oneness, of prayer, and of waiting. Now, this, this period cannot be duplicated today because the Holy Spirit has already come. Now that doesn't mean we can't devote ourselves to prayer and oneness and waiting. But we can do that with the Spirit. But what I do believe is when we are in one accord, when we pray, when we wait, we can receive an increased measure 
of Holy Spirit. We can understand the height and depth and width of his love for us and his purposes for us. We can enjoy greater intimacy with him. But I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit came and stayed. He's on the earth. He's with us when we meet in the name of Jesus. But what do we do? We pray that he would work and have his way. We yield to his moving among us. And so we can say things like, welcome Holy Spirit. That's a good thing to say, especially when we know that he's here. We're welcoming him to do what he can do and to move as he moves. And so as they're in this sense of oneness and waiting and prayer, someone gets a bright idea. Let's replace Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, the one who hung himself. You know, Jesus chose 12 of us, and there's supposed to be 12 of us. So let's, let's pick one. Let's read uh, 15 to 26. We'll read that story. I'll make a couple of comments, and then we'll close In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. What days? The the ten days of waiting. Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong or hanging himself, he burst open in the middle of this field and his bowels gushed out and it became known um, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that this field was called in their own language Akeldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one who dwell in it And look at this, let another take his office. So they're like, okay, Jesus picked 12. David prophesied about Judas. Judas had to do what he did. He did it by his own choice. God didn't make him do it. But because of God's providence, he was going to do it. And then David also prophesied that someone was to take his place. And so... Let's find someone to take his place. Seems good, right? I mean, it's in accordance with Scripture. Sometimes we can do things that are right, but we can do them at the wrong time. But I'm so grateful that God works all things out for our good and his glory. Why does he have to work stuff out? Because we mess it up. We get in the way, but he still works it out. Anyway, Uh, Verse 21, so one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they put forward two names, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen 
to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from Judas, who turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was numbered with the other eleven apostles. The election to choose a successor to Judas was conducted by Peter without the presence or guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus instructed them, don't do anything. Go to Jerusalem, stay there, and wait till you receive power. That's it. But they got it in their head, we should do something. And so Peter conducts this election without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the presence, without the guidance of the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come. He was about to, but he hadn't. Now, Matthias was evidently a good man. He met the requirements of an apostle, and it says that he was numbered with the other 11. But the Holy Spirit ignored Matthias. He's never mentioned again anywhere in Scripture. He doesn't have a book named after him or an epistle. There, was, there is no writings of Matthias in the historical record. All the other apostles, though their writings did not make it into the canon of Scripture, have other writings that have been found. None for Matthias. The Holy Spirit ignored him. The successor of Judas was to be Saul of Tarsus, and indeed was Saul of Tarsus, the apostle to the Gentiles. He was personally chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. And we'll read the story of that a little later on in the book of Acts. And so I think it's fitting for us to learn from the apostles that it is possible to get out ahead of God, to be so zealous for good things that we can miss the timing. I'm grateful that it doesn't have anything to do with our justification, that we're saved, uh, but God, he works things out for us. And sometimes in the working out, he has to chastise us, discipline us, because he loves us and he wants us to get it right. So that's Acts chapter 1. Very interesting. Setting the table, setting the stage for some amazing things that are to come. None of it possible without the three-year ministry of Jesus. None of it possible without his ascension so that he could send the Holy Spirit. We read that Jesus, or we read where Jesus said, it is good that I go so that I can send the Helper. And I'm grateful that he did send the helper. And next week, we're going to read about just that. What happened when he sent the helper? And we're going to talk about the significance of the day in which he came. It's amazing. God does everything at just the right time and in just the right way. <music>